Tēnā koutou no mai, haere mai, welcome to q and I'm Jack Tame. What an extraordinary week it has been in politics. Leaking, deleted emails, resignations galore. Has the opposition ruined its chances of winning September's election? No, it's not dirty politics. I don't agree with that, Jack. That's not fair. We have a warning from one of New Zealand's best-known business leaders who reckons we could be waiting three years for a COVID-19 vaccine. And Tom Sainsbury's new political comedy. Hello everyone, my name is Darren Bellows and I am the leader of the Cup Party. We will have that story shortly. Seven weeks since the leadership coup, we begin this morning with the current state of the National Party. MP Hamish Walker and former party president Michelle Bogue have resigned from their positions after it was revealed they shared sensitive information about New Zealanders who tested positive to COVID-19. Michael Woodhouse also received the information. Now we approached Hamish Walker, Michelle Bogue, Michael Woodhouse and National Party leader Todd Muller, all declined to join us for an interview. But National's deputy leader Nikki Kay did agree to be interviewed. She and Michelle Bogue have been friends since Kay was a teenager. And I asked if it's true she calls Michelle Bogue her second mother. Yeah, so she is, she certainly, ha- I certainly have had a, a strong personal relationship with her. Do you call her your second mum? Um, I, uh, I, I think I've got about five second mums. Mm. That's the nature of, you know, I came in as a 28-year-old into politics and there are a number of people who have um, uh, been there for me th- through some pretty tough times. Yeah, like you say, she offered you... A lot of support through that especially tough period. But she, she would be one of your second mothers. Well, she would be um, certainly um, one of those people that have been there uh, through the tough times. Mm. You've said on the record that, that you personally didn't receive any of this leaked information from Michelle. That is correct. But, but when did you hear from Michelle that she was planning to give some of this leaked information? I didn't. So basically I found out about Hamish... Um, on the Monday night, Todd rang me, and it wasn't until the Tuesday as we were dealing with him uh, that I was notified that Michelle was somehow involved. I didn't actually speak to her because we were busy dealing with Hamish. Uh, I did ring her after all of the statements went out, but I was incredibly gutted to hear what had occurred. Mm. I guess it would just seem inconceivable to people that someone whom you consider your second mother wouldn't have told you about her plans to give this information to some of your colleagues beforehand. Well, it's just it's just what it is, Jack. I mean, the reality is I've got integrity, and I was dealing with, as was mm-hmm. Todd, a person whose career uh, was ending in terms of Hamish Walker. Uh, we didn't know about Michelle until... Um, Tuesday, and it was incredibly gutting and disappointing. But but I, but you've got to understand, we were dealing with not only a legal situation, mm. an MP whose career was ending, and um, from my perspective. But but um, from your perspective. Yeah, well, from my perspective, I was totally focused on that. Right. And I did, but I did, I did ring her afterwards because, for me, it was incredibly gutting to um, find out about what had occurred. And, you know, the, the phone call that I made afterwards was to say, Michelle, oh, my God. It, um, I mean, because we were losing a, a member of parliament mm-hmm. um, and Todd and I were also focusing on the letter to the board... But then also, obviously, Michelle had been a friend to me. I was just really gutted and disappointed. What did she say to you? Um, she was pretty upset. 
um, and so she was pretty, pretty teary. I mean, the next morning I rang her um, to discuss the roles on my committee, and she mm. said, "I'm already emailing you to, I'm already, I'm already emailing you to step down okay. from those roles." Did she, did she tell you on that Tuesday when you spoke to her first? that she had also sent the information to Michael Woodhouse? Uh, no, so what, what occurred is, um, so she resigned her uh, portfolios. It wasn't until actually late, late Tuesday that I found out about Michael. But and so, you, who did you find that out from? Todd. And so the had next you spoken to Michelle before that yes. conversation with Todd? Yes. When you spoke with Michelle, did you ask her if she had sent that information to any of your colleagues? Not, not outside of Hamish Walker. Not then. So basically, why didn't you ask well, her? Well, because she was very upset, Jack. So it basically, seems like an obvious thing to ask. Well, no, but Jack, we're dealing with people whose careers are being ended here. It's totally reasonable, exactly. But it's totally reasonable to expect that people would be upset the next morning. I, because um, I actually had a day in Whanganui, I rang Amy Adams to right. say, um, you know, we've got to, one, find out what this information is, right, exactly, yeah. because it was different as we understood it, and get it to the hearing inquiry. So when you, when you spoke to Michelle Bogue on Tuesday, you didn't ask her if she had sent the information to anyone else, just to be very clear on that point? Just to be very clear on that point, no. Okay. Did she... Tender that information. Did she no. mention that she'd also sent she it to, was, to Michael Woodhouse? She was very upset. But on the Wednesday, mm. right, mm. I um, went to Amy in part because I was going around. The, I was going to Wanganui mm. and just said, "Can you make sure he gets the information to Michael Heron, but also right. that a statement is drafted up?" So basically. He then went to Michael Heron. Again, I'm, remember, I'm doing a busy day in Whanganui as no, well. No, I know, but the, I mean, these are the extraordinary circumstances, though, aren't they? And there will be people who are watching you right now who, who find it inconceivable that you, A, didn't know this information was being sent to your colleagues by someone you describe as your second mother, and B, that you didn't ask once you well, spoke no, no, with her. No, that's, well, there's, there's a couple of things. I did ask after, I did ask actually um, on the Wednesday night. So basically. But you didn't ask on the Tuesday when you first spoke with no, her? No, but the thing is, Jack, Jack, she was incredibly upset. This is someone who's had decades mm. in politics. It's absolutely reasonable for her to be actually crying on the phone to me. So, I mean, there is a human element to this. I mean, the first thing I want to also say is. If you step back from this situation, it is not a good situation at no. all, but people have taken responsibility and people have lost their jobs. I know you're going to be forensic around the timeline. I understand that. Right. But I think it is reasonable to understand that people are um, themselves getting... No, it's just advice. an issue of trust, and I think uh, the media no, and, just and, and needs it, to know exactly so who knew what when with 100% surety. Let me, sure. let me ask this. So on, on Tuesday night... Um, Michael Woodhouse told Todd Muller and yourself that uh, he Michael had the information. Michael Woodhouse told Todd Muller and then he told Todd Muller me. told you. Okay. Yeah. Now, on Thursday, two days later, yeah. your leader was asked this. Quote, was Michelle Bogue a source for Michael Woodhouse? This is Todd Muller's answer. Um, no, look again, I don't understand where you're going, going with this. Have you checked with Woodhouse specifically whether he received that same information? No. Is your leader lying? No. I mean, from my perspective, there's a couple of things here. One is, as soon as, you know, Amy rang Michael, he went and 
contacted Heron to make sure that Heron was aware. What we were trying to do is work out the, the nature of the information versus versus. But this is a very straightforward question. Let's just but, stick but, with but, that. I, I know you're giving no, the information no, 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 to the no, Heron no, inquiry, but no. I mean, on, on Tuesday, your leader knew. On Thursday, he was asked, have you checked with Woodhouse specifically whether he received that same information? Your leader said no. Can I just, can I, can I just say a couple of things? So firstly, Michael went to Heron gave him the information. We were trying to determine, and we were going through a pro process to determine what the nature of that information, actually the discussion with Mike Heron, was, was this information, um, what was the nature of this information in terms of relevance with the inquiry? However, what I do absolutely concede is the perception that then occurred on Thursday, because Michael was drafting up a statement and working through it to be able to be as accurate as possible on that statement, is absolutely the perception from the media was that um, we... That, that, um, the perception is that it that, that is, is come from you 100%. I mean, I mean no, well, it, well, he's asked a straightforward question, he says no, and then it's revealed no, that well, the, the officer is well, Todd was accurate, in my view, around the information that that we could, it was very clear the information was okay. different. But, but, but Jack, can I just make a couple of points? It was very clear the information was different. So Todd was accurate, but I absolutely concede the perception mm. was that Michael had not received any information. Now, what then occurred is we saw on the six o'clock news that the way that the media were reporting it was exactly like that, and the next morning that statement went out. And I, I do absolutely concede that actually it should have been clearer for the media. And, but, but I think when you sort of stand back at this issue, I do want to say a couple of things. The first thing is, we are in an election campaign. People do deserve better. This was unacceptable behaviour. People have taken responsibility. I understand the forensic timeline. There was no intention at all to give that perception. I think we were working through a process that was actually, we're dealing with people's okay. careers, yeah, and we yeah. want to get that information Again, accurate. Again, self-inflicted. Did Michael Woodhouse act appropriately when he was leaked the information? I think he did not share that information, which is very important, which is the reason why Hamish has lost his job. Um, that is a very important fact. But I do think that this is a bit of a lesson in terms of how MPs receive information and what they do, do with it. We get information from multiple sources as, a, as an MP, and I think it is sensitive personal health data, uh, and people have a responsibility to expect that MPs uh, will, I this think, is, this notify. Is what he, this is what he said. After receiving that information, this is what Michael Woodhouse said publicly. This is an unconscionable and unacceptable that those suffering from the incredibly dangerous virus now have to suffer further with their private details yeah. being leaked. Yeah. He was the one yeah. receiving that leaked information from the former National so, Party president. Well, but I think there's a couple of things, Jack. Well, the, fir the first thing, the first thing there's is... a question of trust. I mean, that is extraordinary that he would so release Jack, that statement. No, well, so, Jack, there's a couple of things. One is he did not share that information, which is very important. But I'll come to the second issue, which, I, I, again, I think what you're pointing out is that members of Parliament, while we might get 10,000 mm. different emails, and, you know, Michael has said he deleted it and all of that, the reality is, the reality is the public should expect, I think, when it comes to personal sensitive data, that we do notify the privacy I'm not. I'm not concerned about him, him releasing. I'm concerned about the hypocrisy of criticising the government for leaking private information or not caring for private information when it's he and the former National Party president that are doing the leaking. So it's extraordinary. Listen to this. Something as simple as keeping confidential information confidential should not be a difficult task. He's the one responsible. Well, I think there's a couple of things here, Jack. 
The first thing is, he didn't do anything with it. He deleted it. But, but he, I, he put but, out the statement. But, he put out the statement. He used it as an opportunity to criticise the government when he knew it was his own party's dirty politics that had caused No, it. it's not dirty politics. I don't agree with that, Jack. That's not fair. The reality is that, that, that um, people have taken responsibility. But people, this is incredible well, hypocrisy. Well, no, I think there's two things happening here. One is, I believe this, that, that it is very important in the future that people notify the Privacy Commissioner when they get personal we all agree and with sensitive that. information. Do you accept this as hypocritical? I do not accept that it's hypocritical. Can I, Michael I Woodhouse stay in that portfolio? He can stay in that portfolio. I think he's done incredible work in highlighting what is a terrible situation in terms of COVID. We've got people who are responding from managed isolation. But I think Michael... How Michael, after this week? How after this week, given the noise you have made about trust issues when it comes to this government and about issues in quarantine and, and managed isolation. How can anyone trust your party? Well, they can trust our party for multiple reasons. We've got an incredible track record of delivering in terms of infrastructure. We've got a great track record as well in terms of holding the government to account on these issues of COVID. You can't control, what I've learnt in leadership, Jack, is you can't control some of the events that come at you. You can tr control how you deal with them. Mm. We have seen multiple people lose their jobs as a result of this. And when it comes to the timeline, Todd, we saw an MP lose their job within 24 hours. We compare that to the Prime Minister which took months in terms of David Clark. That is the single biggest thing that I get on the ground is people compare a situation where a member of parliament who's got a young family has lost their job, they've taken responsibility, a former president is no longer in the party, they've taken responsibility, and Michael as well has conceded that he should have done better. Ultimately, Jack, we're in the middle of an election campaign with the largest economic crisis of a generation. That's what we will be focused on, but we absolutely um, expect of our people uh, that we could have done better, but I do not accept uh, that people have not taken responsibility in a timely way. Nikki Kay, Deputy Leader of the National Party. And there was another national resignation this week, unrelated to this story. Dr Yang Jian announced he would be retiring at this election. Two weeks ago, Fena Owen reported on her two-year mission to get an interview with the MP for Q&A, an interview about many things, including his links with the Chinese government. After another unanswered interview request to Yang Jian in early June, I decided it was time to go to his office in Auckland. I wondered whether he would be around uh, in the next few days. I'm not sure about it. I think you can write to him. Yes, yes, I, I've written to him. I've been writing to him for two years. A visit to his home yielded no response. We did request an interview again after the developments of this week. We received no reply. The panel is here next with its take on Nationals Week. And then can New Zealand wait for a vaccine until we open our borders? Former New Zealand boss Rob Fife says no. I'm working on the assumption based on everything I've read that a vaccine is more like three years away. Uh, 12 to 18 months is very, very ambitious. Kia ora te whanau. welcome back to Q&A. Let's bring in our panel this morning. Rachel Morton is the National Party's former Chief Press Secretary. She worked for Simon Bridges. Shane Tapoe is a former uh, Labour candidate and campaign manager. Kia ora kōrua. Kia ora. Rachel, I will begin with you. Sure. Do you accept Nikki Kay's explanation that she had no idea about the leak from someone she describes as her second mother? 
Look, I think that that was a, a fairly strong interview from Nikki. She came forward um, and came on the show this week when other people from the National Party wouldn't. She was very strong in what she was saying, and, and yeah, I accept her at her word. She seemed very genuine that Michelle Bogue hadn't given her that information. Shane, do you? Yeah, look, I, I, I've known Nikki on the peripheral for a while. I think she's a person of integrity. However, I also know, know Michelle Bogue. I spent two hours with her just before her resignation on Tuesday. She likes to share information. She likes to share gossip. So uh, her not sharing Please, with Nikki... Please, caught it on my... Her, no, but that's, that's her nature. Yeah. You know, polit polit political operatives like to share. And uh, I'm very surprised that Michelle didn't offer that information I to just, Nikki. You know, but politics isn't black and white. And, and, and Nikki Kay said to us this morning that she emphatically separates off the, the, the political conversations she has and, and the personal conversations she has with Michelle Bowe, but I still think that in the eyes of many people it would just seem very unusual that, that people who are that close wouldn't be having those well, kind of conversations. that does not make sense. That, on that basis it doesn't make sense. Not only she is a personal friend, not only is Michelle or was mm. a political operative, but also she ran, she was very involved in Nikki's re-election campaign. Yeah. So that political, uh, personal mix exists. That, like, like you say though, Nikki Kay was emphatic. Yeah, and I think what it speaks to here, and, and, and where there is some concern, is that you know Michelle and Nikki are very close. Hamish Walker was very much a Todd Muller supporter when it came to that leadership um, you know, challenge with Simon Bridges. Mm. He was very much in that camp. These are people who are very close with Muller and Kay, and yet they're the ones who have gone out on their own, even though they're on their team, mm. haven't shared it. And I think there are some co concerns there around discipline and you know if they're not controlling the people who are in their camp yeah. then I think that there are some concerns there. Well talk to us a, a bit more about that because you, you probably have some unique insights <laughs> on this on this Rachel. Um, what does this whole saga say about how the checks and balances and, and internal management structures within the National Party are operating at the moment? Well, that press release from Hamish Walker shouldn't have gone out, not without the leader's office seeing it, not without Todd Muller seeing it, and certainly not without the spokespeople like Michael Woodhouse um, and Stuart Smith, who's in immigration, mm. having a look at that first. And I think that Hamish knew that, and it's not acceptable that it was put out in the first place. Um, and then you've got to look at, you know, how Todd Muller has handled it this week. I mean, no one's going to say it was a good week for National, but it could have been much better than it was. Michael Woodhouse knows that Todd Muller does interviews every Wednesday morning with most media outlets. Mm. He picked up the phone on Tuesday night and went, I'm going to give you the information that I was sent this email. Todd Muller then chose to go on four interviews the next morning and not front foot the issue mm. and say... Michael Woodhouse was also sent this email, which he should have done. He then did a press conference that afternoon. Again, he didn't front foot it. He then does a press conference the next day and is asked about it specifically and doesn't answer the question properly. So I think what we're seeing there is a leader who has come from the back bench just two months ago and is probably a bit naive and inexperienced to deal mm. with the sort of pressure that he's under at the moment. I will just mm. remind our viewers that, that you are the former press secretary <laughs> for Simon Bridges. Yes. But, but yes. that being said, you know, I think a lot of people would have seen that timeline this week. They would have seen Todd Muller saying when he was asked specifically mm. what, what, what he'd asked uh, Michael Woodhouse, they would have seen him say, no, no, mm. nothing here. And then, of course, it comes out. He lied to the people of New Zealand. That's the fact of the matter. He was, he was asked very clearly, and I think the journalists knew the answer, actually. Did, did your caucus members have the information? This was on the Thursday, and mm. he knew on the Tuesday. That's not in the weed stuff. That's black and white, yes or no. And he said, no, Rachel is right. This guy was promoted from the back bench, is not nimble on his feet, is not agile enough. Uh, look, and I think that the people of New Zealand will figure out uh, for themselves 
that is not up to mm. the leader of the opposition, let alone uh, fit to govern. Well, I think it is salva uh, salvageable from here, right? You know, there's there's 10 weeks until the election. Nationals still got a lot of um, really strong areas to come out on. They've got their infrastructure plan, which they're going to mm. announce. And we know that National can actually deliver on infrastructure. We haven't seen um, Labor's economic plan yet. We don't know what they're planning around haven't tax. seen Nationals either. No. Yeah, well, yeah. Haven't seen a great deal of policy from anyone. Well, I, I just say also, also Rachel Jack... This week, the last week's been bad for National, next week's going to be worse because there's a couple of things. Uh, Woodhouse had that information a week or so before he handed it over to the leader. He's he said, also very he said, no, on, he's, no, no, he's not upfront at all. He said that he hadn't read it, but then he said it wasn't the same information that uh, that Walker had. How did he know this? Only if he compared it. Yeah, I, just you know, does I, do, not want, add up. I do want to ask you about about Michael Woodhouse because, well, I mean, he, he didn't share the information with media. He I concealed think. That, 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 is, that is accepted. However. Knowing that this information had been leaked, or very similar information had been leaked by a former National Party president, he saw that as an opportunity to get into the government and try and score some political exactly. points by saying that they were being shoddy with private information. I mean, that is extremely hypocritical, uh, is it not? He didn't leak the information, and he went to his leader as soon as the as what happened with Hamish came out, and he was up front with it. But him. he saw it as an opportunity. He, he he used it as a cynical opportunity to try and score points. He, he still tried to benefit. The and, then, and then what did he do next? What was his next action? Rather than pass the email on to Heron and the email thread, he deleted, deleted, deleted. He concealed. Mm. OK, <laughs> let's, let's look a bit more then at where this leaves the National Party. I mean, it has been quite widely reported now that um, internal polls, which we are not privy to, uh, have National or had National at 32 heading into this week on the party vote count. We, there's no way that we can check that, but is, is there anything you're hearing, Rachel? I'm hearing the same as you, Jack. 32. Yep. So what do you think would happen if in the major TV polls to come before the election... National was to find itself in the 20. Oh, there's not much they can do. You know, mm. uh, Simon's having too much fun with the yaks. I don't <laughs> think he'll be. He'll, he'll, I don't think he'll be back. There's not much they can do. They're just going to have to ride with it and do the very best they can, and then come September the 20th, start again. I think National Party's doomed. Is there nothing they can do to improve their stocks between now and? There September? is a lot they well, can do I, to improve I, their stocks. Well, I, I think it's going to get worse for them, and I tell you why, Jack. I tell you why, Rachel. It seems to me that Muller is not very good when it comes to stand up, and I fear for him politically come the debates. I think there is a lot they can do to turn this around and at what they need to do and, and the strategy they've had up until now is to do these mm. quite long-winded, um, lofty speeches and then take quotes from that and put it on social media and it's just not exciting enough and it's not dynamic enough. What they need to do every morning is have somebody from the campaign team wake up, look at what's in the news and get themselves in those stories and then they need to create their own stories to push into the news and set the agenda rather than being the subject of the story. So they need to be a little bit more dynamic with their comms mm. and their social media. Um, it, it's, you know, earlier on, um, you know, we saw National with these discussion documents mm. where they created talking points around gangs and social welfare. Mm. And at the moment, it looks a little bit like Todd's trying a little bit too hard to be prime ministerial. And actually, in opposition, you need to be oppositional and a little bit, um, a little bit edgy and provocative. Let me ask an edgy and provocative question sure. then. Is it possible <laughs> there will be another leadership challenge within the National Party before the election? You, ne you never know. It could be the all or nothing option. And if, that's, if that is the case, there is only one option, and that's Judith Collins.
What do you think, Rachel? I would say it's highly unlikely. You know, we are, we are so close to an election now. Um, like I said, there is a lot of ground for National to cover here. They've still mm. got their big infrastructure package. We still need to be asking some pretty big questions about what Labor's going to be doing with tax, given, you know, the debt that we're coming into as a country. There will be some fertile ground for them. I would say that it's almost certain that Todd Muller will stay on as leader and that, you know, when it comes to the polls this week, sure, it's, it's been bad for National, but this won't be what people are voting you on. You know what, though? It, it went... It, if, if MPs in marginal seats or MPs down the very end of that national list look at those numbers for much longer, they're going to feel very, very anxious. Oh, and, and, and there are people like yeah. Chris Bishop, Chris Bishop, even Paul or, um, uh, Goldsmith in, in Epsom. They'll be very nervous. And, you know, um, I've worked with people across the political spectrum. One common mm. thread that politicians have, they're very selfish, and if they think their jobs, <laughs> if they think their jobs at risk, they'll do anything they can to keep them, Jack. See, I just think it's so telling that this is mm. this is the point we wanted to, to discuss this morning. After everything, you know, mm. after Ty Point, after the quarantine issues this week, mm. that we are mm. focusing on this. There, there's been so much fertile ground you would have thought for the opposition. And to that's be that's what I mean about National looking at yeah. what's in the news and inserting themselves yeah. into it. Ty Point was a missed opportunity. They should have been in that story, and they should have been pushing to be in that story. Jian Yang. Mm. What do you think? I think National Party did something right this week. John Young did not wake up on Friday and think, mm. Mm, I want to spend more time with his family. Someone with a National sat down and said, Jan, you need to go. And, and Rachel, he went. Rachel, I know. They got this one right. We've called you a few times in the past <laughs> requesting interviews with Jan Yang. What yeah, and think? I mean, he did that press conference, you know, after uh, the newsroom story came out, and he did plenty of interviews as the spokesperson for statistics. Um, look, I think the real shame here for National is that, you know, we have such a large Chinese New Zealand mm. population, and National, the largest party in par Parliament, no longer has a Chinese representative. And I think that's a real shame and would need to check with Nikki, mm. but I don't think Paul. Goldsmith is of Chinese descent, so mm. they should be looking for somebody <laughs> well, the, to, to, the thing, to, be, to represent The other thing, community. there's a bigger picture here, folks, and that is, by and large, the Chinese uh, and, uh, members of parliaments yeah. with Chinese ancestry have been used by Labour and National over a number of years for one thing, and that's to raise dough, and that's got to stop. Well, no, there is a, a large Chinese New Zealand community who yeah. need representatives in oh, parliament. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that exactly. is absolutely, absolutely. Okay. My yeah. kids. Thank All right. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. It's great to speak. We really appreciate it. Kōrero mai. Send us your thoughts. We're on Twitter at NZQ&A. You can post on our Facebook page or email us. Q&A at tvnz.co.nz. Coming up, is this Act's year to get more than one MP into Parliament? David Seymour ahead of his campaign launch. And comedian Tom Sainsbury on losing his greatest muse. Hi, sweeties. It's me, Paulina. She said, like, really early on that she kind of wants to do it her way and she wants to have a sense of humour about it. Hoki Mai, welcome back to Q&A. The ACT Party is hoping to capitalise on some of its strongest polling in recent years. The party was at 3% in the last One News Colmar Brunton poll, provided party leader David Seymour holds his electorate seat. That number, on election day, would see ACT return to Parliament with four MPs. ACT Party David, uh, leader David Seymour is launching his party's campaign today. Tēnā koe, welcome to Q&A. Mōrēna, Jack. What has this week done to the chances of a National Act government after September? Oh, I'm not a, a political analyst. You've just had the panel. Um, what of I course do, you are. <laughs> what, I do, what I do know is that there's, there's really three questions the government's going to have to answer on the morning of September 20. Number one, how do we get smart about public health and safely reconnect with the rest of the world? Because this thing could go on for years. Number two, how do we get honest about the debt? And number three, how do we actually seize the opportunity mm. of being an 
island nation on a COVID or pandemic planet. Okay. Uh, and I think that's actually really we'll exciting. We'll get to some of those points in a couple of minutes. But, but I mean, for you to have influence in decision making mm. in all of those policy areas mm. in the future, mm. you need national. Mm. Do you see any way that national will be returned in September given the events of the last few weeks? Yeah, absolutely. Look, if you look at it, my prediction is New Zealand first are gone. They've broken too many promises. Uh, I think that the Greens will be squeezed out by the rival in the Labour Party. Uh, and then you look at the gap between Act National on the one hand and Labour on the other. Uh, your last poll was about nine percentage points. This last week may have affected that, but a week's a long time in politics. Things can change mm. next week. So you are what, you're, what you're talking about is a five percent shift in the centre. Can Todd win the centre? I wish him luck. Act's job is to run our own race and put the right in centre right. Could you work with New Zealand First and Winston Peters as part of a three-party coalition with National and New Zealand First? Look, I don't think New Zealand First belong in any parliament, let alone New Zealand's, and I don't think they will be. But to keep the options open, if New Zealand First are going to be there, mm. then having Act to keep them accountable is going to be even more important than mm. usual. You were quick to criticise the government for the privacy breach mm. of the COVID-19 patients' data. Are you disappointed mm. that your coalition partner was responsible? Oh, hugely. And look, I, I know the people involved, and sometimes it's hard to separate mm. who are some very good people uh, from the behaviour, but that's what we have to do. I think the behaviour uh, is completely unacceptable. Uh, however, the point I made last Saturday uh, still stands. Um, you know, they didn't have good database procedures. Uh, the spreadsheets were all over the place. Many people had them. Uh, and if they hadn't had people fess up, I think we still wouldn't know where this data is. And data losses and data breaches uh, are a major problem with this government that the next government's going to have to get smarter Let's about. Let's talk policy stuff. We're looking at debt that, that might hit 50% of GDP, whether Labor or National um, is the major party informing the next government. How would you bring down our debt? Mm. Well, look, at, first of all, let's just put it in some perspective. Um, it will be 50% of GDP. I think it'll be higher because the Treasury forecasts were rosy. What it really means is that a family of five will have $200,000 of public debt on their account. Now, there's three options. You either increase taxes, reduce spending, or grow the economy faster. We are already the highest taxed country on the Pacific Rim. Mm. Uh, not just higher taxed than Singapore, but higher than Korea, Japan, Canada, Australia, the US, Vietnam. That leaves two options us. then. What would yep. you cut? So, so you've got to start reducing expenditure. Let me give you this example. Every year, the debt management office at Treasury goes out into the international markets and borrows a billion dollars a year uh, in order that we can give people money in their KiwiSaver to invest in the share market. Now, any financial advisor will tell you, manage your debt before mm. you start investing. That's just nuts. So there's a billion dollars a year. ACT put out a five-point plan in May. Uh, you'll notice they've become popular with other parties, but ours is the original. It shows us how we can reduce expenditure by $7 billion and be in surplus by 2023. And it's not going to make me popular saying that, but we have to do it. Because there must be some, <coughs> some, some massive programs you're going to cut. I mean, we need to be saving a whole lot more than a billion dollars a year if you're going to substantially yep. bring down yep. that debt. Yep, so if you go through our five-point plan, we start saying, look, frankly, and this won't help me with mm. uh, younger voters right now, but it's a reality because they're saddled 
with the debt. Uh, we need to be honest. Has fees-free tertiary helped tertiary participation? No, it hasn't. Again, it's, it's given a couple money. of billion max. Yeah, okay, but hang on. You, you know, you just have a billion here, a billion there. Suddenly, you're talking the real debt's money. Debt's 170 billion. Yeah, okay, yeah. but you do seven. Our, our alternative budget shows how you could reduce expenditure permanently by seven billion a year over the next decade. That's actually half the debt paid off. So these numbers do count, and I'd encourage people to look at our alternative budget at act.org.nz slash budget2020 because we need some policy debate here. What about welfare? <laughs> yep. So welfare is something where a lot of people have said, look, I may pay you know, $500, $1,000 a week in tax. If I lose my job, uh, I get 200 bucks back on the dole. Uh, it's not fit for purpose anymore. The government has jury-rigged this 490 a week program. Uh, ACT is releasing a policy today that will take us closer to the Canadian model. I don't want to say too much more about it, but it's the kind of innovative policy that New Zealand will need uh, as we adjust to a post-COVID For those world. of our viewers, though, I appreciate you want to save the, the full announcement for this afternoon, but for those of our viewers who aren't intimately familiar with the Canadian model, it's a form of welfare insurance? Well, what it means is that it's, it's separate from general taxation. You pay in, and if you lose your job, then you actually get paid out in proportion to what you get paid in, uh, and it's time-limited. If you run out of It's almost like a superannuation scheme would work at the moment, in that you, you, you pay yeah, into yeah, it, yeah. and then you can pull down on it if you there, need There's it. an element of that, and it, it, I think COVID has made the necessity of it clearer, mm. because a lot of people have found the dole doesn't cut it if you've lost your job and you've been paying more tax than the dole. Would it be compulsory? So, uh, it would absolutely be compulsory. And if you run out of time on it, you can still go on the dole. But mm -hmm. look, I don't want to announce half the policy here. So, you know, and we, and we got other ideas. Um, you know, Brooke Van Velden, our deputy leader, uh, is announcing a mental health policy that I think was the breakthrough that no one's been brave enough to say. Oh, we look forward to that. OK. Um, I want to ask you about your, your party and its history generally. So you, you were founded in 1993. Mm. ACT has remained a relatively small party and in recent years has only been in Parliament because of that deal in the electorate of Epsom. At what point do you accept that your ideas aren't popular with the average voter? Well, look, I think our ideas are popular with the average voter. Uh, you look at end of nothing life, about you your, at, you no, but nothing about. But I mean, I mean, that's that, but that, this isn't necessarily just a party issue. I mean, you look at the you look at the election results of the last few years. Clearly, you've never you've never had enough cut through to get a, a substantial majority, for example, in Parliament. Well, that's certainly true. But if you look at our basic policy planks. Uh, New Zealand is a free trading nation uh, which has sound money with an independent reserve bank, has largely has broad-based mm. low-rate taxation uh, and has a fairly decentralised system of education. So in some ways it's because a lot of ACT's basic policy prescription has become normalised. And I think one of the reasons that ACT has started to rise again is that we've got a government that threatens free speech, threatens property rights, is playing with the reserve bank, wants to raise new taxes, and suddenly people are saying, actually, we do need ACT to defend these free market policies and our freedoms generally. So if you make it into a coalition government, what portfolios would you want? I see ACT sitting on the crossbench as keeping all parties honest. Mm. Uh, so I'm not necessarily interested in the board. Don't want to be a minister. Remember, well, remember, I turned down being a minister mm. in order to advance the End of Life Choice Act. ACT has always been a party that is here to make better public policy for New Zealand. Just remember charter schools. We did that without being a minister. Uh, and that, but the important thing was the difference we made for those kids' lives. And, but I mean, charter schools have, have been scrapped. So, so you well, No, they haven't. They well, haven't. So, <laughs> yeah, the, um, the, even the Labor Party couldn't close them. All they did was make them sign up to the union, and it's disgraceful that the Labor Party puts middle-class people with comfortable jobs ahead of poor brown kids missing out. How long do you think you'll stay in politics? 
Look, I, I don't make plans beyond three years, but what I do know is that I'm very grateful to have a job uh, where I can make a difference to New Zealand, uh, where I can help people in the Epsom mm. electorate, which never gets reported but because it's confidential, but it's really fulfilling and important, uh, and growing the ACT Party so we have a liberal voice for sound public policy and critical thinking in our parliament. That's something I'm very proud to keep doing. Tēnā koe. David Timo, thank, uh, thank you for your time. Mm. Coming up on Q&A, we may be amongst the world leaders when it comes to managing coronavirus, but Rob Fife has a warning. I don't see a future that, uh, that at any point mirrors uh, the past. Why New Zealand will have to reimagine its tourism industry. Kia ora e tefana, welcome back to Q&A. With close connections across the corporate and political worlds, former New Zealand CEO Rob Fife has been keeping a close tab on coronavirus developments around the world. Along with Helen Clark and the Prime Minister's former Chief Science Advisor, Sir Peter Gluckman, Fife published a paper last week urging a broader conversation about how New Zealand should prepare to open up in the months and years to come. Some of you were very angry when we put some of those issues from the paper to the Prime Minister last week but we think it's important to continue the conversation. So I began by asking Rob Fife if New Zealand can afford to wait for a vaccine before opening up. Uh, well, from my perspective, uh, I think we can't afford to wait for a vaccine. I'm working on the assumption based on everything I've read that a vaccine is more like three years away. Uh, 12 to 18 months is very, very ambitious. So, for me, you know, the prospect of New Zealand being closed to the world for three years is a very, very scary thought. So what that paper was, was promoting was the need to have a conversation about developing a strategy for how we could safely start to open our borders without putting the health and well-being of New Zealanders at risk. So what might a reopening under those circumstances look like if indeed a vaccine is as far as three years away? Well, I think in the first instance, you've, you've got to start by saying, even if we keep our borders closed, the risk is that we will get the virus coming back into New Zealand. I mean, we've seen a succession of, of, I guess, cracks in our, our defences at, at quarantine. Uh, so first and foremost for me, if we're going to open our borders, we have to make sure that our testing regime, our, our tracing regime, our quarantine and self-isolation protocols are all at the level they need to be such that when the virus or if the virus does come into New Zealand, we're able to stamp it out very quickly. Are there some countries we could open up to right now? Personally, I'd be nervous opening to any country until we have our test and trace capability to the standard it needs to be at. And in my mind, we're not there yet. Why aren't we there yet? Uh, well, that's, that's a good question. You know, for a start, no country has really solved for tracing challenge. Mm. Uh, you know, you see these apps in places like Singapore and Australia and Israel and the UK. No country's got their tracing app to better than 25% penetration of the population. You actually need to be at 80%. At so we need 
to be world leading in solving that tracing problem. I think in testing, uh, we, we're just not doing enough testing. You know, the latest evidence is suggesting anything from 30% to maybe as high as 75% of people that contract this virus never show any symptoms. So you can't just rely on, on identifying people with symptoms and going and testing them. You actually have to be testing the population at random to see if the virus is out there. I think the government's responded at speed. They've done everything they could to eradicate or eliminate the, uh, the virus uh, from New Zealand. And now we have to plan for what the future lo looks like living with this virus over however many years uh, that, that you know, that we're de that's demanded of us. The testing is one thing, but as you pointed out, no country has aced the contact tracing just yet. How might we be world leaders? Well, you know, I've been uh, working with a team that's been trying to solve uh, that problem. Uh, we believe that phone apps are not the solution. There's a whole range of issues with uh, the technology of phones, trying to repurpose them as a, as a contact tracing device. Uh, we believe the solution is to issue every New Zealander with a wearable uh, device uh, and require people to, uh, to carry that uh, device with them, with them when they're going into uh, places of congregation. If we did that, we believe we could effectively earn the right to have the freedoms that we have today uh, throughout the entirety of, of for however long this, this pandemic is with us. There are going to be people who are concerned about protecting civil liberties, people who are concerned about privacy information. Already we've seen some breaches of privacy information in the COVID-19 space. Yeah. What do you say to those people? So we've had all those considerations top of mind. So this device that uh, we've designed, uh, it, doesn't, it, it doesn't track your location. So it knows that you and I have been in proximity of each other, but it doesn't know where that's happened. It doesn't store any information on the cards uh, that's personal to you. So the card just has a, a number that it's constantly transmitting mm. and it's receiving the numbers of other cards. So in the event that you test positive, we can extract the, the numbers of all the other cards that uh, you've been in proximity of for the last couple of weeks. Uh, but that's all the information it has. We then have to go to a central secure database to find out uh, who the, those cards have been, uh, have, have been distributed to. How do you think New Zealand is navigating this crisis? You know, my, my heart goes out to the team at Air New Zealand, actually. This is, you know, um, unprecedented. I, th I thought I had some challenges when I was there as CEO, but certainly nothing, nothing like this. I think they're doing uh, the best they can in, in the circumstances. Um, my, my pick is it is going to be uh, three years before Air New Zealand is remotely back to the scale of flying that they were doing before this pandemic arrived, if they ever get back uh, mm. to, to that scale. 
uh, they've done a tremendous job for New Zealand, I think, in helping repatriate New Zealanders back home, keeping air freight uh, routes open, trying to feed as much capacity and to support the resurgence of the domestic economy as, as they can. Of course, Air New Zealand plays a critical role in New Zealand's international tourism industry. What do you think the future of our tourism industry looks like? Yeah, I, I, I think tourism, I don't see a future that, uh, that at any point mirrors uh, the past. Uh, I think it's going to become increasingly challenging uh, for people to move around the globe freely. I mean, we saw what happened after 9-11 with the introduction of a significant amount of security mm. uh, protocol at, at the border. People got used to that over time and, and uh, tourism numbers have continued to grow. I think this is going to be very different. I think people are going to have a lot of anxiety and a lot of fear about moving around the globe. There's going to be issues with simple things like uh, travel insurance. Uh, it's going to take a while for the protocols to stabilise, but at any level I think there's going to be yeah, a lot more process to get across borders, both when you're entering a, a foreign destination as, as well as when you mm. come back home. And I think those processes are going to be with us for quite quite some time to come. So we're going to have to reimagine our uh, tourism industry. Uh, you know, I think potentially at the for people that have got more time on their hands, that you know have three or four weeks or five or six weeks for a holiday, uh, I think. You know, those trips are still viable, but someone going away for a week for a, a short break somewhere, I can't see that happening in the next uh, year or two to anywhere near the degree it has in the past. So we were bringing in about 3 million tourists a year before COVID-19, international tourists. How do you think the New Zealand industry should adapt? Are, are there ways that we can set ourselves up for, for a different sort of tourism industry in the future? Uh, absolutely, I, I think we can. Uh, you know, for a start, New Zealanders were heading offshore and spending a lot of money offshore. There's an opportunity to capture that spend. I, I know of many of my friends that are taking the opportunity. They may have be, traditionally been offshore at this time of year. They're now spending that time in New Zealand. So that's a, a real uh, opportunity. Uh, I think. The Australian opportunity is a very real one for us, and they were a significant portion of those uh, three million international visitors, almost, almost half of them. Uh, so that's a real opportunity for us, and I think the focus on the Trans-Tasman bubble is a very, very valuable uh, focus uh, for New Zealand. I think we shouldn't lose sight of the maritime uh, border. You know, a lot of people coming here on on yachts or by boats potentially are effectively quarantining in transit uh, to New Zealand. So I think that solution is potentially still a very viable uh, solution for us. I think mm. the, the air travel, particularly the long haul air travel component is, is gonna be the hardest uh, dimension to, uh, to re-establish. That's Rob Fife with a cozy looking setup. After the break on Q&A, our rich history of political comedy and Tom Sainsbury's new show. Ideas, okay. Gordon, what's happening in Rodney at the moment? 
nothing. Tēnā koutou, welcome back. He may have lost his muse in Paula Bennett, but like the National MP, comedian Tom Sainsbury is moving on. He has a new political satire starting on TVNZ On Demand this week. It's about a troubled candidate trying to get elected into Parliament. He spoke to Fina Owen. This is Darren Ballows, who's hoping to clinch the electorate of Glenderson. He's leader of the newly formed Conservative Unity Party. You know, we think that the law should come in and control um, how people conduct their lives. And we think that this aspiring politician needs media training. Just in time for the election campaign, tomorrow comedian Tom Sainsbury will drop his latest online offering, Sextortion. Sure, we were small and some might say fringe, but with MMP on our side and a little bit of luck, I felt like we actually had a shot in the upcoming election. Hi, sweeties, it's me, Paulina. Tom Sainsbury's perhaps most famous for his impersonations of MP Paula Bennett. He fuses his face with his characters using Snapchat technology. He was recently mentioned in Parliament for the role he played in Paula Bennett's resignation announcement. So the call was made to Tom, and as quick as you can say, a bowl latte and a ham and cheese panini. Tom and Paula were filming a video in their kimonos. She was quite upfront about it. She said, I'm thinking about leaving. And I was strangely reeling, because I've spent so much time kind of analysing her and portraying her, obviously. But she said, like, really early on, that she kind of wants to do it her way, and she wants to have a sense of humour about it. Today's a huge day for me, obviously, because today's the day I'm announcing that I'm retiring from government. Tom's popular Simon Bridges character had already signed off as leader. Kia my name is Simon Bridges, and I am the... I was the leader of the New Zealand National Party of New Zealand. Do you miss Simon, doing Simon? The good thing now with Simon is he's got time to do his social media stuff, and so there's a lot more to kind of watch and parody. But it's, it always feels like richer and there's more material when you're satirising the leader. Only a national government can provide the leadership to do that. I mean, Todd's there, and I've been practising Todd, but there's also the technical side of things. So Todd is bald, and I'm not bald, and so like when the technology of Snapchat of putting his face onto mine, even if I manage to get the face quite good, it still doesn't kind of look like him. And Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern is equally challenging because of face shape. I find Jacinda very, very hard to do. She's very, uh, like, expressive with her eyebrows. Hi, I'm Julianne Genter. It's me, Peter Dunn, but you can call me Pete now that I'm done. Hi, I'm Nikki Kay of the National Party of New Zealand, Deputy Leader. That's me, Kiara. 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 So I've been kind of obsessed with politics for a long time, and people get so passionate about it because I think that these politicians represent political ideas, but you kind of forget that they're humans as well, and so I think there's a real opportunity to humanise them and see that they're actually people, they're not their ideas. The response to his political characters, he says, would suggest that, in an indirect way, the comedy makes politics more accessible. People are engaging more with the real-life drama of politics. Can I have the suit when you finish with <laughs> Local political satire, on the screen at least, has been noticeable by its absence for a while. I wonder why that is. Is it just tastes and moods of comedy just go through waves, I guess? But the fact that 
kind of people did embrace my satire just shows that there's always a thirst for it. Taking the mickey out of New Zealand politicians has come in waves over the decades. There was a very popular public eye, facelift, a week of it. David McPhail's Muldoon was legendary. And look at the weight! Look! Three cameras when one could be doing the job. You, you, you're fired. Taking the mickey out of people in power has always appealed to people, I think. It's like in, in the classroom, when someone can mimic a teacher, it suddenly becomes this kind of, gets everyone kind of on board and stuff. So I think there's that kind of levelling of through comedy. So you want to just just tell us about what the, how we're polling? Yes, um, I've, I've crunched the numbers on your, on your polls, and I have to say, I've never seen numbers like this. They're quite, uh, quite mind-blowing. Awesome. With the upcoming series Sextortion, a producer who had seen Tom's Snapchat characters approached him with the idea for the comedy. He'd kind of already come up with the idea of the kind of the scandal and during election time, but there's no kind of script written, so it's kind of... Um, guided improv or um, ad-libbing. Ideas, OK. Gordon, what's happening in Rodney at the moment? Nothing. But while Tom Sainsbury's web series goes out, he'll continue to keep voters entertained via his online postings, parodying the real politicians and the run-up to the election. Because there'll be lots of material for you, right? I'm, I'm living for this election. I feel very blessed and very lucky that it's happening and then I, you know, I'm in a position where I can make fun of it all. <laughs> you can watch Tom's new satire, Sextortion, on TVNZ On Demand from tomorrow morning. We're very lucky to have someone like Tom in New Zealand, aren't we? <clears throat> it is time for this week's One Thing. The idea this week comes from Rachel Utumapu, who's the manager of women's development at Fire and Emergency New Zealand. Rachel Udamapu, Foreign Emergency. And the one thing that I would do to make New Zealand a great place is have more women join our organisation. I've spent 16 fantastic years as a career firefighter and now I'm the Manager of Women's Development. And I want a foreign emergency that reflects our communities. Presently, women make up around about 5% of career firefighters and about 18% of volunteer firefighters. And studies show that young women in particular don't see firefighting as an option. And we need to change that because a more diverse organisation is more creative, it's more productive, and it's more supportive for you, New Zealand. So the one thing that I would do to make New Zealand a great place is to encourage more women to join Foreign Emergency New Zealand and other organisations like ours. Fantastic. Kuomotu, that is Q&A for this week. Thanks for watching. And now, mihi kia koutou i pānui. Thanks for your contributions. Marae is up next. Thanks to the Q&A team. Hey te wiki. We'll see you next Sunday morning at 9 o'clock. Q&A is made with the support of New Zealand On Air.